Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show nationwide from my flagship station in Atlanta, Georgia, WSB, which just so happened to be last year, the most listened to talk station in all of the United States of America. Now, congratulations to them, my family, my people. I love them. We got to talk about the election. I played you the ads in the first hour. We, we, we got to talk about some election stuff here. I'm happy to take your phone calls, too. Uh, this is going to be the, the segment of the show we call Schadenfreudelicious. Uh, the phone number is 877-973-7425. The television show Ted Lasso on Apple TV Plus made famous a phrase from football that is soccer for those of us in the land of the free, the home of the brave, where we play real football. And the phrase is, it's the hope that kills you. I forget the guy's name, but there was a military leader. I believe he was an admiral, not an admiral. He was, he was a high-ranking military official who was captured by the Vietnamese with John McCain. And a lot of men died in the Hanoi Hilton. And this guy was asked what separated him from them. And he said, pessimism. That he was a pessimist. And it was the optimists whose spirits were broken. They expected something better. They expected something good. They expected something great. And they were continually disappointed and never let go. And it was the hope that killed them. Now, we, we gotta, I got to distinguish something here real quick uh, as, as we head into Easter in particular. You know, in, in the New Testament in Scripture, it talks a lot about hope, um, the hope of the resurrection in particular, the hope of things to come. And we, in our vernacular, by we treat the word hope as the wish, the desire, the thing we want badly. We hope for snow tomorrow if we're a kid. We hope to be able to get tickets to the master's. The hope that kills us. In Scripture, in the New Testament, please understand, as we head into this season and you start hearing a lot of Christians talk about the hope of the resurrection stuff, the better translation is profound certainty. Profound certainty. So it's the profound certainty of the resurrection. It's the profound certainty of that which has not yet come to pass. The profound certainty of we as Christians know the resurrection is real and the second coming is going to happen. That's that hope, the hope from the Bible. Now, hope in our vernacular, hope as, as, as we come to know it and talk about it, is the thing we wish for, the thing we want. The thing we, we hope has a probability of happening. It's the hope that kills us. And right now, the Democrats have moved into the hope phase of 2022, and it's going to kill them. The hope is going to kill the Democrats, not not physically, it is going to crush their souls. Jeff Greenfield is a political analyst. Uh, I, I respect him greatly. He actually is someone I pay attention to. 
if you actually read what he's writing, it's not nearly as hopeful as the headline. The headline in the Politico as an opinion piece is history shows the Democrats midterm doom isn't preordained. Among the most frequently cited observations about politics, along with it all comes down to turnout and a week is a lifetime, is this factoid about midterm elections. Since World War II, the party holding the White House has suffered an average loss of 26 House seats and four Senate seats in a midterm. This is correct, but it's not right. At least not as accurate as an accurate measure of what has happened in the last several dozen midterms. It's misleading in the same way it would be to put Bill Gates in a room with nine in indigents and conclude that their average worth was $13 billion. The more accurate way to look at midterms is that there is no good way to summarize them. True, only two elections have seen the White House's party actually gain seats, but there are several where the losses have been minimal or non-existent, or where each House of Congress has produced different results. He's built up your hope now, Democrats, hasn't he? He's built up your hope. You're going to turn the corner. Biden will be unique. It will stand out. And then you get to the next sentence. The problem for Joe Biden is that this more nuanced history provides almost no encouraging news. If Democrats are to survive in November with their congressional majorities intact, they're going to have to try to pray Republicans really step in it in a few key races. The most memorable Midterms are those that featured huge losses for the White House. 1946, when the discontent with the tumultuous post-war environment swept the Republicans into both houses of Congress. 1958, Democrats won 49 seats, 50 House seats, 15 Senate seats amid a recession, giving them control that lasted 22 years in the Senate and 36 years in the House. 1974, when voters punished the Republican Party for Watergate, giving Democrats 49 new House seats and four in the Senate. 1994, when the collapse of the Clinton health plan gave Republicans both houses of Congress with 54 House and four Senate seats for the first time in 40 years. 2006, when the Iraq quagmire and a series of GOP corruption scandals turned both houses to the Democrats. 2010, where the slow recovery and the clumsy start of Obamacare gave Republicans 63 seats and control of the House. 2014, when nine Democratic Senate seats in control of the body fell to Republicans, giving Barack Obama the dubious distinction of being the only two-term president in living memory to suffer two midterm disasters. Much less well-remembered are the midterms where the party escaped serious damage. There are, of course, the two elections where they actually gained seats, 1998, thanks to a booming economy and Republican impeachment, and 2002 and the post-9-11 rally-around-the-flag sentiment. In 1962, just weeks after the successful resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy's Democratic Party only lost four House seats. In 1970, with dissent over the Vietnam War and with Vice President Spiro Agnew denouncing radical liberals and a biased news media, the GOP lost 12 House seats, while the Democrats lost three Senate seats. One to Conservative Party New Yorker James Buckley. In 1978, Jimmy Carter saw Democrats lose 15 House seats and three Senate seats. And in 1990, providing the Seinfeld midterms where more or less nothing happened, George H.W. Bush's Republicans lost only seven seats in the House and one in the Senate. 
What united all these contests is not only the relatively small change in the lineups, but also the fact that none of these elections changed control of either Chamber of Commerce. This is where Democrats can take little, if any, comfort from the midterm election where the president's party took only a flesh wound. It's bad. It's that bad, bad time of year. Those were different. Why? 1990 saw the Iraq War. 1998 saw the Clinton impeachment issue and and, uh, the major economic boom. 2002 saw 9-11 and rally around the flag. It's bad for the Democrats. And the Politico casts this op-ed as hope for the Democrats. I mean, literally, the headline, history shows the Democrats' midterm doom isn't preordained. But this is the last paragraph. All this is thin gruel for a party facing headwinds as daunting as any in recent campaign seasons. And sometimes the terrain is simply too treacherous to navigate. Barack Obama's inaugural in early 2009, the transition team heard a briefing from their economic gurus explaining how slow and weak the recovery from the Great Recession would be. Said Obama advisor David Axelrod, we're going to get our butts kicked in the midterms. It would be wholly unsurprising if similar posterior concerns were overheard on the White House on a daily basis now. Not much hope there. And then there's Paul Begala. Now, I want you all to know, and I don't mind saying this, and people tell me you've got to stop saying this sort of stuff on radio. It ruins your credibility. No, no. I know Paul Begala, and like him personally, we disagree on everything. I mean, we from from sports to you name it, Paul Begala and I disagree on just about everything, and he is a, just a he's a super nice guy. You never know it, and I can feel your eyes rolling and y'all yelling at the radio for me daring to say something nice about a guy like Paul Begala. I personally like the guy. I do. We disagree on everything, but I got to tell you, he made me fall out laughing with the CNN piece. This is his commentary at CNN where he's a contributor. Joni Mitchell was right. You don't know what you got till it's gone. On the 12th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, former President Barack Obama returned to the White House once again, standing shoulder to shoulder with President Joe Biden, his former number two, who is now managing a number of domestic and global challenges. The former president spoke of how difficult the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, was to pass and the crucial roles played by Nancy Pelosi and late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid in rounding up the necessary votes. And his idea, his idea, is to campaign on Obamacare. That, the, that Joe Biden has a winning strategy by campaigning on Obamacare. I don't know what planet Paul has moved to, but campaigning on Obamacare, when people are seeing empty store shelves at the grocery store, I mean, you've got liberals complaining to the Politico about empty store shelves at Whole Foods. Campaigning on the Affordable Care Act and a Supreme Court nomination in a Democrat-controlled Senate That doesn't get you very far. Now, listen, he's trying to put some optimism here for the Democrats. Democrats are already demoralized. I played you the ads. They won't even say they're Democrats in the ad campaign. That's how bad it is for Democrats right now. It's the hope that kills you. Right now, Democratic political analysts, 
they see what's happening. Democrats are demoralized. 50% of regular Democratic voters say they're not even going to bother showing up this year. 50, half the Democratic vote decided they're going to stay home. That's obscene. You know the number one issue, according to Gallup's poll that's out today? Crime, something the Democrats say isn't a problem. Holy moly, it is bad for the Democrats. And so what they've got to do is they've got to have the Democratic consultants come out and say, hey, y'all, it's not that bad. we got a game plan now. We're going to campaign on Obamacare and, and Katanji Brown-Jackson. That's going to be what gets our people to the polls. It's the hope that kills you. The Democrats, they had a lot of hope. They could use January 6th. They could use Donald Trump. They could use voter disdain for the GOP. They could use all of these things. Look, I remember uh, at the beginning of last year, we were getting gloating phone calls from Democrats to this program saying, you're already talking to the midterms. You're going to lose. The voters who rejected Trump are going to reject the rest of you in 2022. Kept saying, it's a long way off and it doesn't look good for you guys. Oh, they wouldn't believe me. They denied it. It's the hope that kills them. Actually, to be fair and honest, in November, it'll be the voters that kill them. Breaking news, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, has been confirmed as the 116th Justice of the United States Supreme Court. She will be the first black female on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, she will take Justice Breyer's uh, seat when he is done with his term. Uh, he's retiring at the end of the term, so she will wait it out until he is done and then take her seat on the United States Supreme Court. It actually is a historic moment. Uh, it does not shift the court to the left. Uh, interestingly enough, so they have a, what they call the, 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 the shadow docket. It's where the judges can do things if they don't dramatically change the rule of law. And John Roberts has joined the progressives on the court to complain the conservatives are being too aggressive with using the, the shadow docket to get things done that they shouldn't get done. It's an interesting uh, reaction there from him. Nonetheless, nonetheless, we move on. Um, there's a, a well, yeah, yeah I, I, you know what? I'm going to talk about this on the flip side because I want to spend more time with it than I originally did. I want to tell you something else in, in the hope that kills you, vein. Republican registrations have surged in Pennsylvania. Republicans are registering formerly Democratic voters at four times the rate that Democrats are making the reverse conversions in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, a warning sign for Democrats. The Republican gains in Pennsylvania, home to a critical U.S. Senate race, follow a pattern seen in other states that could have competitive contests in November as high levels of disapproval with Joe Biden's handling of his job are helping narrow the long-held advantage held by Democrats in numbers of registered voters. People presumed that uh, Democrats would still be fired up in Pennsylvania. But when you look at the ground game in Pennsylvania, Republicans tweaked their 2020 ground game. And in so doing, uh, they are maximizing turnout in Pennsylvania. They're maximizing voter registrations in Pennsylvania. That's a pretty striking thing to happen because you've got Pat Toomey's seat. Uh, Pat Toomey is the incumbent Republican senator. He is retiring 
Nice guy. I've known Pat for a long time. Very nice guy. Uh, he was the uh, Club for Growth president for a number of years. He was a conservative in the House. He moderated when he got to the Senate to appeal across the state of Pennsylvania. He's been there for a number of years. Very nice guy. And he is retiring. And the Democrats really want to pick up that seat. But the headwinds are against him this year. The Republicans need to hold Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. They're more worried about um, Ron um, Johnson than they are the race in Pennsylvania. Uh, David McCormick, he's a CEO, very well-to-do. He's become very, very Trumpian as he runs in the Republican primary. That looks like it may actually work for him in the Republican primary. He's running against Dr. Oz. Yeah, that Dr. Oz. So we're all Team McCormick here. And it looks like he'll get the nomination, probably moderate himself thereafter. Uh, and the Democrats are, are having kind of a, a messy fight there. You got Connor Lamb, moderate Democrat uh, veteran running against the current Pennsylvania lieutenant governor who flips back and forth all the time on stuff. Uh, interesting guy. And if the Republicans hold it in Wisconsin and they pick up just one of four, Georgia, New Hampshire, Nevada, uh, Arizona, they win. And now suddenly Democrats are starting to be concerned with Colorado. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, this race shakes up uh, across the nation with this. When we come back, I, I, have you seen the homeless camps in your community around the country? There are these homeless, I mean, tent villages cropping up. Uh, New York has decided to do something about it. And progressives, well, they're losing their mind with their new progressive mayor. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on this here program? I saw uh, Dwan Tatro. He is a uh, Democratic Party consultant. Uh, and um, he's complaining about Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, using a bunch of police to clear out uh, homeless villages around the country or not around the, or in New York City. I Have you all seen these in your cities? If you haven't, uh, I have. Uh, a friend of mine used to live in San Francisco. It's kind of funny. He would send me uh, pictures from his office window and they would always be entitled uh, Greetings from Behind the Iron Curtain. And it would be people taking a dump in the middle of the street, having sex on the sidewalk, heroin addicts shooting up. Uh, you know, I mean, just just the horrors of living in San Francisco, and the tents, the homeless villages on the on the sidewalks. I was in Beverly Hills uh, for HBO a while back, and uh, they fairly well keep it clean. But I I like to walk. The weather's always nice out there. And was walking around, and and you can come upon the homeless village and the tents everywhere. New York City has it. Uh, Austin, Texas has it. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, my gosh, uh, around the city of Atlanta, there are tent villages. I don't know where they get the tents. I'm sure some well-meaning charity, some PCUSA church, something, uh, gives them tents. But it's a problem. It's a problem because in many cases, these are people suffering from mental health or poor health conditions generally, physical health conditions, drugs and the like. 
uh, and there's crime. Uh, oftentimes, there's harassment of law-abiding citizens. People are made to feel unsafe. In fact, there is a huge, huge issue of uh, people's fear of crime going up in the country corresponds to new gun sales in the country. And you would think if a bunch of progressives wanted to cut down on the rate of people owning firearms, they would realize they need to do something about crime and probably homelessness in their cities, and that would help the other problem. But they haven't actually done anything. And now the progressives are beginning to get outraged by government officials cracking down on on what they call urban camping. The the left, instead of calling it homelessness now, they've started calling it urban camping. In Austin, Texas, they legalized people being able to pitch tents on the city streets. I'm not talking about the Southwest Airlines guy. Nope, nope, actual tents on the streets. And uh, the homeless are living in these tents. The people in Austin, Texas revolted. They did a, a ballot initiative and beat back the effort, and, and the police started cracking down again. But this willfulness, and, and this is a pattern. Look at homelessness. Look at crime. Look at education. What's going on with progressives today? In homelessness, in crime, and education, they deny there's a problem or they try to reinvent it so that it's not a problem. With homelessness now, it's urban camping, and it's these people's choice. They've made this choice. They don't want to stay at the homeless shelter, or they say there's just no place for them to go. If you give them a ton of money, way more money than they need, they'll take care of it, and they never do. We pour in a whole lot of money on homelessness, and nothing gets solved. Or look at education. A lot of progressives, the reason they want to teach your kindergartner about sex instead of the alphabet and numbers is because they've given up teaching kids. They want to indoctrinate now. They're they're past teaching. They think it's a failed exercise. These kids aren't going to learn. Society's in chaos. We might as well teach them the birds and the bees and and how to be tolerant and open-minded and progressive. And in every single one of these cases, it's they've given up on the core functions of the state. They have given up on dealing with the homeless issue. And so now they've decided, oh, well, these people made a choice. We're just going to let them do it. Pay no attention to the law-abiding citizens who have to go outside and have the homeless guys shooting up in their front yard or pooping on their rose bush. In schools, it's the same thing. They've given up. They don't want to admit they've given up. They don't want to admit, they can't admit, they can't even recognize that their own policies failed. So they're just reimagining the world around them. Remember, one of the key aspects of postmodernism, and and particularly as progressives have embraced critical theory, is revising the language. They believe they control reality by controlling the language. This is a core fundamental concept you must understand about what we're dealing with right now. Progressives in a postmodern environment believe that power and reality come from language. So if you call homelessness urban camping, it's just something fun to do that they have chosen to do. If you call a boy a girl, you must believe it because it is their truth, not your truth, their truth, and you must respect their truth. All of these things come about as they twist words. You know, I, I've mentioned this before. Um, I've, I've actually 
read some of this on on air before. Tim Keller, the theologian, I'm hoping to have him on the show for Good Friday next week if he's up for it. Uh, he's battling pancreatic cancer, late stage. Um, but he has written a piece on uh, systems of justice, worldviews of justice. And one of them, he talks about postmodern justice. And um, let me just read you some of this so you understand this. Postmodern critical theory argues the explanation for all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or even to differences in culture or even to differences in human ability, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. The only way to fix unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy, never by asking anyone else to change their behavior or their culture. And all art, religion, philosophy, morality, law, media, politics, education, and forms of the family are determined not by reason or by truth, but by social forces. Everything's determined by your class consciousness and your social location. Religious doctrine and politics and law are always a way for people to maintain power and control of others. As a result, reality is nothing but power. And if that's the case, then to see reality, power must be mapped through intersectionality. Race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and more. If you're a white, male, straight, cisgender person, that means your your gender and your sex align. You have the highest amount of power. If you're none of those, you're the most marginalized and oppressed. And only the powerless and the oppressed have moral high ground to speak out because they know oppression. And the way to exercise power, this is the important one. Pay attention to this one. This is where I should be clapping like this for you to pay attention. The way power is exercised is through language, through dominant discourses. A dominant discourse is any truth claim, whether grounded in reason or science or religion or morality. Language does not merely describe reality. It creates reality. Power structures mask themselves behind the language of rationality and truth. So academia hides unjust structures behind academic freedom, corporations behind free enterprise, science behind objectivity, religion behind divine truth. All of these seeming truth claims are just narratives designed to dominate and control. So the only way to subvert the dominant discourse is to control speech and language. That's what the left is doing here. In all of these things, and in all of these ways. Now they have a problem, and, and there's a jumping off point here, from urban camping, homelessness, to, to everything else, that the left is in a meltdown. Even as they realize what's happening here, and they look at the, they look at the Senate, David Atkins in Washington Monthly has a story. Here's the headline. Forget January 6th. Republicans have another plan to subvert democracy. And what's their plan? They they tell you very helpfully, very helpfully in the subtitle. By leveraging their Senate power and the Supreme Court, the GOP can rule the nation as a predominantly rural older white party. Aspects of American politics might change, but the critical dynamic remains the same. Republicans are abusing the rules of governance and destabilizing democracy. And they are dismantling every norm that makes bipartisan government possible. Such is the case 
with the Supreme Court nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee refused to move her nomination to the full Senate, thereby deadlocking the committee. By the way, what Democrats have done in the past. It's hyper-obstructionism, though, if you're a progressive. And here's the rub. Democrats recognize they're going to lose the House. Republicans probably will take the Senate. And in 2024, Republicans will probably gain the Senate to such a degree they could have a supermajority. And they'll have the Supreme Court. Therefore, Joe Biden won't be able to get a lot done. Even I quibble with this sometimes because uh, Republic was the Roman version of a Greek democracy. They operated in uh, different ways. Romans, for example, in a representative democracy. We are technically a representative democracy, but in that the states also have power. The left forgets their history, obviously. And part of that history is that the states are semi-sovereign entities. They are not subsidiaries of Washington, D.C. They actually are semi-sovereign nations, particularly the first 13 plus Texas and Hawaii. They are very semi-sovereign entities. They have powers. And they only gave up some of those powers to Washington. And when we formed the country, our founders came up with a principle by which new states could be created, giving the citizens of those states the same powers, reserving only some for Washington. And part of that includes things like the Electoral College and the Senate. They matter greatly. We're not a direct democracy. And by the way, our founders specifically loathed the idea of majoritarianism, the idea that the majority should get its way at all times, in all cases, if it had the votes. I mean, the entire process of getting something done through Congress is based on gridlock and a slow process, and that's a feature, not a bug of the system. But to the left, anything that slows down their agenda is anti-majoritarianism, anti-democracy, anti-progress. And now, ironically, do you know what the left is proposing? Nullification. It's what John C. Calhoun embraced before the Civil War, that the states should just be able to say, nope, not going to do it, not going to comply. Nullification, that, that's that's where they're doing. That's, that's, that's what they want to do. They're not in charge. They can't get their way. They're going to lose the Senate. They'll probably lose the White House in 2024. And so their idea is we're just, we're just going to ignore Washington. I don't know how much longer we can stay a United States when progressive states are the ones that sound like the slaveholding states of the 19th century. Even on abortion, their arguments on abortion are the exact same arguments that the the slaveholding states made. Instead of my body, my choice, it's my property, my choice. If you don't want a slave, you don't have to have one. I mean, all of their arguments, it's, it's not really a human, all their arguments are the arguments of the slaveholders of the 19th century. And by the way, it is those same states, those same people, those same progressives who are trying to punish any other state. I mean, look at what happened when Georgia and other conservative states passed their fetal heartbeat bans. It was the left that piled on the Fortune 500 and said, you better boycott those states and punish them. California passed a law, said state employees are not allowed to use state money to travel to eight conservative states that enacted transgender sports bans. Georgia, which just passed this, will be added to the list. It's South Dakota, Mississippi, Kentucky, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, and two others I can't remember. I was actually writing about this last night. 
I'm sorry, but when the left starts calling for boycotts of states because they disagree on social issues and starts saying they're going to nullify laws, starts behaving like the Confederates behaved, we're not headed for a United States much longer. And it is very, very much worth you noting that it is the left that can no longer abide by the system, not the slaveholding Confederates. It's the left now advocating nullification, not the slaveholding Confederates. And it is the left that is adver- that is encouraging bullying of other states, not the slaveholding Confederates. We can't stay united in a nation where some states can't respect the processes of the government and claim that somehow they're they're out of alignment with democracy when we never were a true democracy to begin with. We were a nation that deeply fears majoritarianism, and the left now claims that that means that we're somehow bad. No, it means that our founders were smarter than all of us, even if they had flaws. Now, I want you to be smarter by going to Patriot Mobile and using them for your cell phone company because they fight for the right. They give a portion of their profits to the conservative movement, the pro-life cause, the Second Amendment cause, veterans, first responders. They are getting really, really aggressive in, in supporting the conservative movement, and they need you to do business with them to generate the profits by which they can do it. So you magnify your own dollars into the conservative movement, and you can get free activation by using my name. All you do is go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. I know you got questions about the coverage. They've got great detailed coverage maps, but the bottom line is they use the same cell towers everybody else uses, so you really don't have to worry about this. You go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric or call them. They have 100% U.S.-based customer service. 972-PATRIOT is their phone number. Tell them I sent you. You get free activation, and they give great discounts. If you're a veteran, a first responder, a teacher, a gun owner, NRA member, talk to them about the discounts. patriotmobile.com slash Eric. So, you know, for... All this time, all these people in Washington lecturing us about COVID. Remember, it's like uh, Barack Obama had the party and, oh, well, we were all tested. We were were sophisticated people. And then they all got COVID. It was a super spreader event. Well, the Gridiron Club, it's an annual dinner in Washington, D.C. And it turns out it was a super spreader event. A-list guests had to show proof of vaccination, but not negative tests. And many mingled freely without masks at the dinner. Uh, by Wednesday, uh, Adam Schiff and Joaquin Castro and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo had announced they tested positive. Merrick Garland tested positive on Wednesday. And now Nancy Pelosi has tested positive. All the Democrats hanging out together. Uh, thus far, 14 guests have tested positive for COVID from the gridiron dinner, but they're the sophisticated. I'm sure they'll be fine. You know, I, I wanted to talk about it, and, and I not had to, to deal with family stuff this first hour. Uh, one of the things that I want to talk about, and I'm going to tomorrow, is all the things that got wrong about uh, COVID, not, not necessarily the virus, but economically, the data around what was going to happen, the predictions and fallout, and then a lot of the stuff that changed over time and they did so poorly telling us one of the big issues is the vaccine. So, for example, uh, when they first announced the vaccine, they told us all very authoritatively that if you got the vaccine, you would not get COVID. And that turns out not to be the case. And in fact, a number of epidemiologists at the time said you shouldn't say that. That's not necessarily the case. And they were all censored. 
But in fact, uh, it turns out while you get a more likely than not a very mild case, should you have the vaccine, and that's not always the case, but more often than not the case, doesn't mean you're not going to get it. But then there's the economic data about, oh, well, women were going to drop out of the workforce, massive home foreclosures were going to happen, uh, people would be evicted, uh, people would go bankrupt, all that, and none of that's actually happened. There are some reasons for it, but oftentimes it looks like the left was throwing out fear scenarios, trying to get policy shaped in their direction, just like they do with climate change. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. I'll take your phone calls as well then. In the meantime, you guys have a great rest of the afternoon. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building. You want to build a building. Reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can. So spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.